three real-life self-defense incidents. I know because I was there. Self-defense. Self-awareness. Self-development. This is the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Hello and welcome to the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. The Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore is a production of philelmore.com and themartialist.net. I am the aforementioned Phil Elmore, your host. Let's see how many times I can say my name in the opening. Um, if you want to grab the RSS feed for the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore, you need only go to the the, the the Martial Arts Podcast.com. Uh, at the Martial Arts Podcast.com, that will take you to the uh, the hosting providers page for the podcast, and you can grab the RSS feed there. There's a bunch of links where you can grab the podcast at your favorite provider. The Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore and my news and commentary podcast, Surviving the News, are both available on pretty much every platform. iTunes, Amazon Music, uh, uh, what am I forgetting? Um, iTunes, Spotify. Uh, it's on Spotify. Um Pretty much anywhere you get your audio podcasts, you can get both of my podcasts. If you subscribed to the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore and Surviving the News on YouTube and on your favorite audio platform, I would be really grateful. Um, I've noticed the numbers for the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore slowly climbing. Um, <laughs> we're still nobody. I mean, it's slowly climbing is a relative measure. Um, almost no one listens to this. So if you are listening to this right now, you are... Uh, part of a very select, exclusive group. Um, one of those affiliate marketers always refers to their their hot list members. Like, you're only you people on the hot list of super special people are getting this offer. And, you know, the, the, that's a ridiculous joke. I mean, they, they'll get that offer to anybody who'll look at it. <laughs> They're just creating the impression of exclusivity so that you'll feel special. Well... I don't have to create the impression of exclusivity. Almost nobody out there knows that this exists, or that even fewer people know that Surviving the News exists. Um, and Surviving the News does not have a lot of replay value. It's a topical podcast, so it's very unlikely you're going to want to listen to me talk about my thoughts on the news from four months ago. But if you sub any time is a good time to subscribe to Surviving the News, because the next time a podcast comes out, and I do roughly one per week, uh, I, a sometimes occasional weekly podcast is how I bill it, um, anytime one of them comes out, you will get fresh takes on the news of the day. Maybe you'll even hear about news you haven't heard about before. Um, you know, there, I, I find it fascinating to go through the news, uh, and one of the reasons I broke out the martial arts podcast with Phil Elmore from uh, the news podcast was because I, I wanted to do something, um, you know, martial arts themed, self-defense themed, and it just felt like it was too specific to be included in a news podcast. You know, they just didn't go together. So I do them separately, and it worked out great. Okay, that's enough of that. <clears throat> Somebody who commented on my YouTube channel asked about self-defense incidents that I have experienced, and there are a few of them. None of them are remarkable. None of them are particularly special, but they do sort of escalate at the rate I'm going in another few years um, something worse will happen. <laughs> because I looked back at three of the most memorable ones, uh, one of which I'm going to tell the story here on this podcast and then excerpt it as a separate video on the YouTube channel. Um, but I have never had to cut anyone. I've never had to shoot anyone. Um, but I have had incidents where it might have progressed to that had I not known what you do in those situations. The training that I've had, I've had, and I've had a lot of it, 
comes from folks like uh, Shivworks and uh, Chris Fry over at MDTS. Uh, Shivworks, of course, is, is South Narc, uh, Craig Douglas. Um, I've taken classes with, uh, I took a class with John Holshine. That was a knife class. Um, I've taken classes with uh, Rochester Personal Defense. There was a time in my life when I did a lot of these classes. I wore out a Glock 19 going to classes and doing shooting. Um, that was back when it was a lot easier. To, not Still not easy, easier to carry a gun in New York State. Um, I remember the Glock got so worn out that when I put the magazine in, the slide would go forward. And I asked one of the instructors, I'm like, is that a problem? I'm like, well... So I ended up just uh, getting rid of that gun and buying a whole new one to replace it. I bought a Glock 19 at a store that was both a deli and a gun store. They had a gun counter in the back of the deli. So I, I legitimately got a sandwich and a Glock at the same store, which I feel like is a life achievement. But anyway, um, the first of these scenarios happened at a time when I was carrying a gun. And ironically, I had just come from one of these shooting classes. I had to go and pick up dinner from, it was a, uh, I think it was a Middle Eastern restaurant, I want to say. Um, and that restaurant used to be on Westcott Street in Syracuse. Uh, also on Westcott Street used to be uh, Seven Rays Bookstore, which was a, a sort of a neighborhood establishment. It was well known. Uh, it was an occult bookstore in that area. Really kind of a shame to see any bookstore go out of business. Um, it was one of those places you walked in and not only did it immediately smell like incense, but anything you bought there smelled like incense forever after that because it had just been sitting on the shelves soaking in the incense that they burned there all the time every day. Anyway, um, the downside to these businesses being where they were is that that neighborhood is bad. It is not a safe place. These days, there are certain indicators that you are in a bad neighborhood, the sort of place where you should not linger. If there are bars on the windows of any homes or businesses, that's a bad neighborhood. If there is a rent-a-center, there's about a 50-50 chance of it being, you're either in a bad neighborhood or you're near one. If there are uh, gunshot detectors, that's a more recent uh, invention. They didn't have those at the time that this incident occurred. But now, in bad neighborhoods, the police will install those gunshot detectors. There's usually a blinking light on a pole somewhere that tells you that it's there. And so if, if gunfire goes off, I assume the police are alerted. I've never, never really been too clear on how that works, if they're just collecting data or they're actually dispatching alerts. But anyway, if you see those blinking lights, especially if you're on a street and you can look down the street for a long ways and you just see a Christmas tree's worth of blinking blue gunshot detector lights, you're in a bad neighborhood. Don't linger. So going to this place. Oh, uh, other signs that you're in a bad neighborhood. There are certain grocery store chains, and for the life of me, I can't think of the name of it. I would know it if I saw it, but anytime you pass one of them, uh, it's not, um, uh, we're not talking about just discount grocery stores. Like, there are Aldi's in every neighborhood. Aldi's a great store, um, but I want to say it's got like price right or something like that in the name anyway it, for some reason there's there's this chain of grocery stores that only ever seems to target low-income areas and for whatever reason when you're in a low-income area you're also in a high crime area i pass one of those grocery stores on the way to an emergency room once 
When I got to the emergency room, I knew that this was the Bad Neighborhood Hospital. I had been sent there because they had some special piece of equipment that wasn't available elsewhere at that time of night. And they had metal detectors at the emergency room entrance because gang members kept going there and getting into fights in the emergency room, so they put in metal detectors. That's a really bad sign. You're, you know you're in a bad neighborhood when. <laughs> oh, boy. Memories. So... At this this time it was it was evening it wasn't dark yet i think this was summertime probably because i was at an outdoor class i remember i still had my gun uh and there was a time when i carried that all the time but but i still had the gun that i had taken the class with and that's significant because there's this i remember posting about this i called it deprogramming from the hot range when you take a, a couple of days worth of shooting class and you're shooting, you know, a thousand rounds over the course of a couple of days, you start to see everything as an action movie. You're like, should I be drawing my gun right about now? Because you've spent so much time doing just that. And I realize I'm being a little silly, but your brain works differently when you've just spent, you know, let's call it a Friday and a Saturday engaged in concentrated effort involving shooting things. When you get a few weeks out from that, your brain tends to settle down a little bit and you're a little more realistic. But when you've just had the class, you're just you're thinking in terms of shooting that whole time. And you can't not, you know, you know what I mean? So I had my gun on me. I'm going to the restaurant to pick up the food. And these two guys lock onto me and start walking in my direction, looking right at me. And I remember this vividly. I remember thinking, oh, Please don't make me do any of the stuff I've just spent learning how to do. Uh, just spent two days learning how to do. Because one of the things we did in that class, and I believe this was probably uh, one of Craig Douglas's Extreme Close Quarters classes. I took that class two years consecutively. One time was to write an article about it. And I think I was nursing an injury, and I, so I didn't actually do much of the class. But the first time was the class where I'd gotten the injury, and I was fully engaged in that one. I had a, a, a very nice man fell on top of me and, and folded my arm over my chest, and my shoulder was screwed up for about a year after that. Um, nobody gets... The only people who don't get hurt in full contact classes like that are the people who are 20 years old and still made of rubber. Um, other than that, you're going to get injured. It happens. Uh, and the older you get, the more you get injured. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> I still had my gun, and I'd been learning how to manage unknown contacts. You know, when somebody approaches you, the drill that you're supposed to go through, and I'm going to talk about this again when I get to my second story, because there are three. So I remember thinking, oh, please, please don't make me do the thing that I am supposed to do if these guys start to get close enough that it, that I, it triggers that response. Because, you know, you start out by making space, asserting a barrier, putting your hands up, telling people to back off. If they keep approaching, you get louder. If they continue approaching, you get louder and more profane because some people don't hear you if you don't use profanity. And then you go to preemptive force if they're still coming. And this is all compressed. You know, it takes longer for me to describe it than it takes for it to happen possibly. So I don't know, something about my body language or something about the, my demeanor or the fact that I saw them and was looking right at them and I don't know if they saw in my eyes the recognition something is happening here and I'm going to react to it but they stopped and crossed the street uh, and it might have been nothing I might have just been jumpy from having gone through the class but when people when two people look right at you like that and they're coming right for you it's worrying and it's the first of two times as I tell these stories where two people would approach me in a way that was dangerous. 
when a guy's working with another guy, that right there is kind of a red flag. And now, again, could be coincidence, could have just been two guys walking. Uh, and that's the thing about real life self defense. If you do things right, you'll never really know. You'll know what it probably was. So, this story amounts to nothing. I was in a bad neighborhood, two guys looked at me, and then they crossed the street, more or less. But I, I'm pretty sure that something about my awareness of them caused them to go, no, we'll find somebody who's not aware of us. Because, you know, your average criminal is looking for an easy mark. He doesn't want to have to work for it, and I don't blame him. It's a numbers game. Why wouldn't you go after people who are easier marks? Uh, and, you know, the fact that it was a neighborhood like that, eh, right away. My instructor once told me a story about how he was at an event in downtown Syracuse. I believe it was Taste of Syracuse, which was like a food festival. You know, the food trucks come out and there's stands and, and uh, local restaurants represent. And, you know, you go and you make your way through all the stands and eat a lot of food. And there's some of the usual carnival stuff there. Um, he was at that and he saw a couple of guys walking at him and they seemed focused on him in a way that was unhealthy, the way I've just described to you. And he said he made eye contact with them, and he, this is my instructor, he got ready to do terrible things to these people. He would have, too. He taught me how to do some of those terrible things. Uh, the, the system we do is primarily CELOT. It's an Indonesian system. It's pretty, pretty brutal. And they got some kind of vibe from him and kept on going. And here's the clincher. My teacher said he overheard one guy say to the other, why didn't you do it? Meaning, you know, why didn't you do what we planned on doing, which was mug this guy? Granted, I could be extrapolating. He could have been extrapolating, but I believe his interpretation of events is accurate. And I think what happened was these guys meant to, you know, just we're at a festival. There's lots of people. We're in an area where the people are not, you know, for one brief moment, some side street somewhere in between stands. Maybe we'll relieve this guy of his wallet. And then something about his body language or his eye contact made them go, mm, probably not. So that does happen. Being aware, and this is the lesson of this first self-defense story, being aware of your surroundings and making other people know that you are aware of them. I see you. Not not getting into, not confronting people, not locking eyes with someone and, you know, getting all up in their face or projecting that you're getting up in their face. You're not causing a confrontation. You're just, hey, I see you there. Even just a nod, like, hey, you know, the, the nod that guys give to each other, acknowledging the presence of other guys, is enough that they go, oh, I, he's ruined it. He knows I'm here. It's going to be harder. I'm going to find somebody whose face is buried in their phone or they're looking up. You know, they say that when you're a tourist somewhere, you should avoid looking up at the big, tall buildings because you're going to give yourself away and also not be paying attention when somebody approaches you. So that sort of... That event is representative of any number of times I encountered very aggressive people on the street who tried to chat me up and who I, I would not engage with. People will try to engage with you and get the, the talking parts of your brain going so that you're thinking about your response and you're not thinking about what they do. That's why when someone asks you what time it is, you don't look down at your watch. You bring your watch up to, to cover yourself while you're still looking at them and so that you can see the time. Um, it looks like a looks like a bong sao. Um, and if you if you are familiar with Chinese uh, fighting terms, you know what that is. The if someone comes up to you and asks you for a light, the answer is I don't smoke, I don't have one, because you do not want to get your hands engaged with giving somebody a light. Like if you have a matchbook and you can toss it at them, tell them to keep it, fine. But uh, don't 
don't stand next to a stranger and occupy your hands in a way that lets them, you know, punch you and then mug you. Um, that's the lesson there. So this incident that happened outside that restaurant might have been nothing. I don't think it was. Uh, and and that was the f that's the first incident that came to mind when somebody asked me about uh, self-defense scenarios that I've experienced. The second incident, that one is a little more, that one got a little more so down the timeline. I was, uh, I went to see a movie and it was 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night when the movie got done. The movie theater is at a local shopping mall. So we come out of there, I was with uh, two young ladies and we come out of the movie theater and the only cars that are still in the parking lot are people who were at the movie, maybe a couple of random employee cars. Most everything is deserted. All of the other stores are closed, just the movies were open at that point because it's late enough that everything else is shut down. That's how these things work. I say this because with so few people, there aren't just random crowds of people wandering around. So we're walking out of the shopping mall and I become aware of the fact that there are two people following us. Now, we are headed to a car that is completely alone. Where I parked my car, there were lots of cars in the parking lot when we got to the mall earlier that evening while the mall was open. All of the other cars have left. It's just my car by itself. There is no other car for these guys to be walking to. And they were walking just a little too fast and just a little too intently and a little too focused on me. And I thought to myself, oh no, this is a mugging. That's what this is. I am seeing a mugging and I am the target. Specifically, I and the young ladies with me. Now, I am, I was born on Mosey. I have one walking speed. This is it. Um, I'm Mosey. So they were well ahead of me. And that's good because they never knew that any of this happened. Uh, I'm looking at these guys coming at us and I'm thinking, I, I'm going to have to defend myself. That's literally what this is because this doesn't look good. They're coming right for us and there's no reason for them to be coming in our direction. So I reached into my waistband where I was carrying, it was a SOG Trident, I think at the time. And the Trident is somewhat similar to this Boker reality-based blade that I'm waving around if you're watching this on video and not on an audio podcast. It, the blade is a little shorter, but it's a similar knife. You know, it's your typical tactical folding knife. It's what I had, it was in my waistband. So I pull the knife out, I snap the blade open, I put it in a reverse grip, and I hold it down by my side because I'm getting ready. I, and I'm, my brain is now rehearsing the steps of what I have to do as they get closer, how I engage with them, how I prepare to defend myself, and if they keep coming, what I then do. Um, just like that class taught me to. I, no, that was a class about guns, but the, the principles of managing unknown contacts, they stay the same. So I get the knife ready, and the two guys following me keep coming for just a little bit more. Now, mind you, I'm not waving the knife around. It's low, it's dark, uh, it's, it's near my body, so I don't know if they could see it or not. But suddenly, maybe because I had stopped moving and was facing them, suddenly they turn 90 degrees and they go in another direction at a right angle to me. So I catch up with the folks that I'm with, making sure to keep an eye behind me so that they're not circling around us. We get in the car and we leave. I legitimately had to pull a knife in self-defense and nothing happened, which is exactly 
what you want to be the case. Had that continued to an actual self-defense scenario, I would probably still be dealing with the legal fallout today. I have mentioned before uh, the case of Jared Ha, and there's a series of, it's a multi-part video series called The Edge of Defense um, that is done by Funker Tactical, I think, that's here on uh, YouTube, if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, I urge you to watch that video series. Jared Ha's story is uh, troubling because Jared did literally everything right. He did everything right in terms of trying to disengage and trying to defuse the situation, giving his attacker every opportunity to back off before he finally deployed the blade and cut the attacker. He did not kill his attacker. He was being basically beaten to death. Uh, I think he was up against a car, if I remember the story correctly, but some drunken frat guy was beating him and had him, you know, in a position where there was nothing Jared could do to fight back. Jared, he, he drew his knife and deployed that, and that's how he got the guy off him. Well, that guy lived. He, he didn't die. And yet Jared was staring down the barrel of being prosecuted for, I don't know what crime they hung on it. It was attempted murder or it was some other, you know, uh, a serious crime. He got off barely, and it says a lot about our legal system that it, it, it was so close, but he did, he did uh, get acquitted. But, you know, his life was forever different, and thank God I didn't have to go through any of that. For one thing, I don't particularly want to have to, you know, I don't want to get anywhere near some dude's blood. I would like his blood to stay inside him. I don't want it. So uh, to have to go through all that, and uh, come out with nothing. That's the that's the ideal outcome. So, could I be mistaken? It's possible. That could be total coincidence. It could have been two guys who, for whatever reason, went in one direction and then turned. Now, that's odd behavior, but it might have had nothing to do with me. It could have had something to do with me in that they could have been completely innocent, and then they saw some guy acting oddly, so they chose to avoid that odd acting guy. That could be but I don't think so. I think based on everything that I experienced and, and what I saw, I think those guys were intent on us specifically because we were the only people there. And as soon as it became obvious that I was prepared for them, whether or not they could see that I was armed, they went in another direction. That's your, your ideal self-defense scenario where you get ready to defend yourself and then the preparations you have taken lead to the situation being diffused and the attackers go away. Um, I hope that it works out that way for you, too, because I don't want to pull a knife on somebody in self-defense, but I will if I have to, and I have done so at least the once. Okay, uh, story number three. This is much more recent. This happened last year, I think it was. Uh, my uh, girlfriend and I went to a bookstore. This is a suburban bookstore. It's not in a bad neighborhood. There are no bars on the windows. There are no gunshot sensors on the street. Perfectly nice area. Kind of a commercial, suburban area. So we go to the bookstore. We come out of the bookstore. It's 7.30 at night, something like that. Not real late. Not even fully dark. You know, this was. I think this was summertime. So we're headed to the car, and I hear the dreaded words, Excuse me, sir. Nothing good ever comes after excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir, is always a prelude to somebody chatting you up to try and con you. When you're on the street and a street person of whatever nature, a homeless guy, a hustler, a con man, whoever and whatever they are, when they start out with excuse me, sir, what follows is a pile of lies wrapped in an ask 
you know, they're going to, uh, the more elaborate the story, the more likely it is to be false. They're going to give you a whole song and dance. They want a very specific amount of money down to the last cent, you know, $12.51 will get me on this bus or put gas in my car to get me here. Or, um, I just need, you know, this amount of money for my sweet great grandma's cancer treatment, whatever it is. Excuse me, sir, is always followed by a stupid story, a, a very involved story that is meant to separate you from your money. And then other times, excuse me, sir, is meant to start the conversation so that whoever is trying to engage the talking part of your brain can then mug you. And I'm pretty sure, based on subsequent behavior, that that's what this was. This was a prelude to being mugged. So I walk out of the store with my girlfriend. We're headed to the car, and behind me I hear, excuse me, sir. Now, mind you, the pandemic was more or less over at that point in terms of general public acknowledgement of it, but I still don't want some stranger walking up on me if I can help it. So he's walking towards me. It's a middle-aged black guy, medium build. Nothing about him was particularly remarkable. But he's like, excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir, and he's coming towards us. So I just put up my hands and I said, no, no, thank you. And I think he was offended by the fact that I had short circuited his speech. Like all of these people have a spiel that they do. It's, it's part of whatever con game they're running. They have a script in their head that they follow. So when you short circuit the script, it annoys them and makes them angry. Uh, it's not uncommon. So I say, no, no, thank you. And he's like, what? And he keeps coming. I'm like, don't approach me. Do not come any closer. Do not. So I get more forceful as he keeps coming. And he gets mad. He's mad. All of a sudden, he starts shouting threats and invective. I'm a racist. I'm this. I'm that. Well, he keeps coming. So I have to get louder and start reaching for my pocket. I think it might have been me reaching for my pocket that uh, gave him pause. So instead of continuing to approach, he starts to circle the car. He circles around to a point where he's no longer directly in the way of anything. So I get my girlfriend into the car, and we've talked about the incident since, and she knew that she needed to get in the car so that she wasn't in between the two of us. And so I circle around the car to the other side to get to the driver's side, fully expecting this guy might try to close distance with me. He's now angrily shouting threats. He shouted his address at me. I... I don't know if I was supposed to make an appointment to meet him later to re-engage with him. I don't know. But yeah, this first time I've ever had anyone shout their address at me. A friend of mine asked me after I told him the story, like, what was the address? I'm like, I, I don't know. Because the whole time this was happening, I was following the script I had been given when I learned about managing unknown contacts from people like Craig Douglas. I was just following the steps. My brain was pre-programmed and the steps work. You get your hands up. You warn them off. You get louder if you have to. You get more forceful if you have to. If they continue to close distance, you make ready to deploy a weapon if you have one and use preemptive force if they won't stop. Meanwhile, he's jumping up and down practically trying to get me to re-engage with him. And I think the strategy there was to make me mad enough by being insulting and antagonistic that I would close distance with him and give him a chance to re-engage. I think that's what he was hoping. Because if I suddenly start approaching him, I'm no longer thinking about keeping him away. So I get into the car, and I half expected him to throw stuff at the car 
or to you know try to get in front of it or something. He didn't do either of those things. He was still shouting, still shouting angry threats about how he was going to you know, kill me and do this and do that. Uh, and we drove away. And fortunately, our next stop was quite some distance away. So I didn't have any fear that he was going to come follow us or anything like that. But the incident illustrated two things. One is that the Managing Unknown Contacts script absolutely works. You do the steps and it will get you out of trouble. And like my previous self-defense situations, it wasn't necessary for me to put hands on anyone. It wasn't necessary for me, in this case, even to deploy a knife, which is good, because I would have been worried that somebody would have called the cops and said, this guy showed a knife. Uh, I, didn't want, I don't want to get arrested for menacing or brandishing or anything like that. So uh, it, it all worked out. The steps worked. They served me well, and they're, they're ingrained in my head, which is what this this incident illustrated for me because this was quite some time later. Uh, you know, this was a number of years after the last time I took one of those classes and it's still up there. So the training works and the training will serve you well. And if you just follow the script, it will get you out of trouble. The other thing that this incident illustrated was, like all my other self-defense stories, I'm like, was it my imagination? Was he just looking to scam me for some money? Because that's what excuse me sir often is. Uh, and so he got mad and because he perceived my unwillingness to engage with him as racism because I am white and he was black. That's possible, but given the nature of the threats he was shouting at me when I wouldn't engage with him and the, the way he was trying to get me to get angry so that I would close with him again, I think that definitely was a mugging. I think he was angry that I threw him off his game and that it wasn't going to work, so he tried a different tactic. I think that behavior is not the behavior of someone who is merely offended. Had he been offended and really thought I was a racist, he would have contented himself with, you know, shouting your racist insults at me and then walking away in a huff. I think that's what people normally do when they're offended that you've been racist to them. I don't know, since I don't go around being racist to people, but I would imagine. Um, but no, in this case, he was so angry and so desperate to try and get me angry that I really think that proves, it underscores that I was right. My initial assessment of the situation, that this was a mugging, was correct. And that, those are the three stories that uh, came to mind when somebody asked me about self-defense situations that I've had. Um, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been an armed citizen for a long time. I always stay within the law. I'm always keenly aware of the legal repercussions of my actions. And even though I don't go to stupid places with stupid people to do stupid things at stupid times, still, <laughs> something bad can find you, even if it's outside a suburban bookstore at 7.30 at night. And all you wanted to do was shop for books and maybe grab a coffee. So, uh, and that's really the lesson of self-defense. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try to avoid bad situations, eventually one can find you, quite regardless of anything you did or didn't do. And you have to be ready to defend yourself when that happens. The real self-defense stories, the real-life realistic self-defense stories don't sound like something from an action movie. They don't sound exciting, but they're real, and that's really how they happen. All right, uh, I have been Phil Elmore. This has been the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Until next time pretend I said something cool here. This has been the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Visit us online at linktree slash Elmore.